As if its bloody invasion of Ukraine weren't enough, now Russia is throwing an intercontinental ballistic missile test into the mix. The lead starts right now. President Putin testing a new ICBM. What this says about Russia's audaciousness and what Putin told the world before today's launch. Plus, pleas for help. President Zelensky saying today 120,000 Ukrainians are stuck stuck in the besieged town of Mariupol and a Ukrainian commander on the ground there begging the world for assistance evacuating civilians, warning they may only have hours left. And a problematic breakdown in the supply chain. It's not just Amazon orders caught in the backlog. Some U.S. companies warn the slowdown could soon have a life-threatening impact. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with our world lead today. This hour, President Biden is meeting with his top military leaders at the White House as Ukrainian leaders plead for additional assistance from the West to save innocent lives. Ukrainian President Zelensky says 120,000 Ukrainians remain trapped in Mariupol, where local military leaders are reporting a constant bombardment by Russian forces. The mayor of Mariupol urged residents to leave as quickly as possible. But this afternoon, Ukrainian officials announced today's humanitarian quarter, quote, did not work as planned. They say fewer people than expected showed up to board buses out of the city. Some of the buses are now being forced to follow routes determined by the Russians. City officials say they do plan to try again tomorrow. There is, of course, no guarantee of safety. Ukraine says Russia has fired upon humanitarian quarters before. Time, of course, is crucial here. Listen to the plea from a Ukrainian Marine commander on the ground in Mariupol, which he says may be his last. We might have only a few days or even hours left. The enemy's units are 10 times larger than ours. We appeal to the world leaders to help us. So far, Pentagon leaders say they see no major Russian territorial gains in the eastern Donbass region, where fighting has intensified in recent days. Ukrainian soldiers were seen fortifying parts of the Luhansk part of Donbass ahead of an expected Russian assault. The region's military governor says 80% of their territory is already under Russian control. Amidst the fighting in Ukraine today, the Kremlin announced what it says is a successful test of its new ICBM, with Putin delivering this warning to the West. This truly unique weapon will strengthen the combat potential of our armed forces, reliably ensure Russia's security from the external threats, and provide food for thought for those who, in the heat of frenzied aggressive rhetoric, try to threaten our country. Threaten their country. CNN's uh, Phil Black starts off our coverage from the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, where we spoke to innocent civilians who have barely survived the Russian brutality so far. Andrei Binchenko says his life will be forever split in two, before and after the day the Russians came. He remembers the skies over his home in Hostamel, near Kiev, suddenly swarming with dozens of attack helicopters. He says they flew in a low formation, like they were on parade. And soon after, he says, Russian ground forces approached his home. This is where he says they opened fire from a distance. An explosive round landed close by, fracturing his leg. Shrapnel piercing much of his body. But Andre says he was lucky. He got to hospital before the Russians worked out. He used to fight pro-Moscow separatists in eastern Ukraine. He says many veterans from the east were deliberately killed during the occupation. 
If I had not been wounded, I would have been shot too, he says. Vasily Hilko also survived Russia's occupation, but at great cost. Vasily was shocked by the Russian numbers and firepower that rolled into Bogdanivka, a tiny village northeast of the capital. So many tanks passed, he said, so much ammunition. Every house had 20 soldiers occupying it, including the house where he, his neighbors and family were sheltering. They stayed in the basement, the Russians moved in above. One night, Vasily says, four drunk soldiers pushed open the basement door and screamed, everyone out by the count of ten or all will be killed. Vasily says women were screaming, children crying, and as he was the last one through the door, he was blasted from behind with a shotgun. He says nothing was left of the leg, all bones destroyed, just a puddle of blood in minutes. He says two days later, some Russian soldiers helped him get to hospital. He still thinks they're beasts, not people. The Russian invasion of areas around Kiev violently interrupted and ended many people's lives. And some would somehow survive brutal, intimate encounters, leaving them forever changed. Jake, overwhelmingly, the thing you notice talking and meeting survivors like these is they are still deeply shocked. They are often very softly spoken. They struggle to explain and come to terms and understand what it is they've just lived through, especially those who've experienced the casual cruelty and the willingness to indulge in grotesque violence that defines Russia's temporary occupation of these communities around Kiev. Jake. Phil Black and Key for us. Thank you so much. The Pentagon says Russia did notify the U.S. ahead of its missile launch today. Press Secretary John Kirby telling reporters that the Biden administration, quote, did not deem the test to be a threat to the United States or its allies, unquote. Let's bring in CNN's Barbara Starr, who's live for us at the Pentagon. Barbara, what, what can you tell us about this new missile that Russia tested today? Well, as an intercontinental ballistic missile, Jake, of course, it has a very significant range, some more than 6,000 miles, and would, by definition, be theoretically capable of striking the United States. That is not what happened today, of course. Launched from northern Russia, heading east to the far east on this test flight and impacting out there without any incident. The U.S. was able to track it the entire time. Uh, U.S. satellites, U.S. intelligence assets have a very significant capability to track these kinds of missiles. They put off quite a heat signature. They can track that. They can quickly calculate the trajectory and where they're going. So that is why, technically, the Pentagon comes to the conclusion, not a threat, not a threat to the U.S. or the allies. But this is Vladimir Putin's continuing modernization of his advanced weapons program. This is a missile that will replace a Soviet-era one that is in the inventory. It will be more modern. It is said to be capable of carrying multiple nuclear warheads. So to, to be sure, the U.S. watching all of this very carefully, and the Pentagon, even for saying it's not a threat to the U.S. or the Allies, saying that this was not something a responsible nuclear power should have done in the current escalating tension. Of course, the U.S. canceled one of its own regularly scheduled ICBM tests earlier this month. Jake? Barbara, you also have some new reporting about how Secretary of Defense Austin is staying on top of all these possible 
nuclear developments? Well, let's start exactly, but we should start with a point. Right now, the Pentagon says it has absolutely no evidence, nothing to indicate that the Russians are moving their nuclear weapons around. So that's good news. Uh, but again, you come to Putin's uh, uncertain temperament, his escalatory language, and that has resulted in the defense secretary, we are told, keeping an extremely sharp eye on Russia's nuclear inventory. He gets briefed about it two to three times a week at the highest classified level. So he is completely up to date. And were there to be some kind of development, he will be notified, obviously, very quickly. The president would be briefed. They don't see that right now. I want to emphasize that. But there's enough concern in these current times that they are indeed keeping a sharp eye on it around the clock. Jake? All right, Barbara Starr at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. A Russian billionaire facing sanctions over Putin's war is now publicly condemning the invasion. Oleg Tinkov wrote on Instagram, quote, I don't see a single beneficiary of this insane war. Innocent people and soldiers are dying. Generals waking up with a hangover have realized they have a shit army. That's a quote. Of course, there are idiots that write the letter Z, but there are about 10% idiots in all countries. 90% of Russians are against this war, unquote. Switching to English, at the end of his post, Tinkoff called on the West to, quote, give Mr. Putin a clear exit to save his face and stop this massacre. Joining us now to discuss the former U.S. ambassador to NATO, Kurt Volker, who served as the U.S. special representative for Ukraine negotiations under President Trump, and also with us, of course, Julia Yaffe, founding partner and Washington correspondent at Puck, who's done great coverage of this entire conflict. Thanks so much to both of you for being here, Mr. Ambassador. Tinkov is one of a very small list of Russian businessmen who have come out publicly against the war. Does this move the needle at all for Putin? It doesn't really. Uh, I think that he has doubled down on everything that he's done here. He's put himself out on a plank, really, where he needs a military victory to save face. And he's trying to figure out what he can cobble together at this point, given the initial failures, to declare such a victory uh, in order to sustain his claim to power in Russia. His claim that 90 percent of Russia is against this war is an interesting one. It's not supported by polling. But then again, people say if you're a Russian citizen and somebody asks you what you think about Putin, you say you support Putin. Um, When I was in Ukraine, it was right after Bucha and there was a, a shift in public sentiment where they stopped only blaming Putin and they started also blaming the Russian people because of the atrocities. Is there any way to know how many people in Russia support this war? I don't think there's a solid way to know. No, unfortunately, it is like you say, it's kind of like going into a bank that's being held by hostage takers and asking the hostages what they think of their hostage takers. <laughs> right. You know, it's it's not a very scientific way, but I don't think it's as high as 90 percent of Russians not supporting the war. I do, unfortunately, think that total control of the media landscape after, you know, two decades of near total control of the media landscape has born fruit for Putin. And I think a lot of people in Russia do genuinely support this war. You're seeing, for example, a lot of mothers of fallen Russian soldiers saying that they support this war. And they especially because their kids have died in this war, because they don't want to think that their children have been killed for nothing. Right. But beyond that, uh, as you, you, you talk about the propaganda in Putin's Russia, a, a lot of Ukrainians who talk to people in, in Russia, as you know, say, they're zombified. Yes. They, and, this is what, and this is what caused the Russian soldiers to perform these atrocities. They really think the Ukrainian people are these demons. Are these Nazis? Uh, again, when you hear this all day, every day, when it's all around you, even if you're not directly watching the television, it's just there and it's seeping into your consciousness. 
for months and now decades, right, uh, about how Putin is always right, about how Ukraine has been taken over by neo-Nazis. This isn't something that has entered the Russian uh, informational bloodstream in the last three months. It's been happening for the last eight years. That's a long time. And in that eight years, uh, in, independent sources of information in Russia have been whittled down to now nothing. Mm. So there's no, I mean, the people who are getting information, independent information, are people who already don't believe the government, right? They're purposely turning on a VPN, setting up a VPN, turning it on, and going to find information because they already know that what they're hearing from the television is, not, is probably not true. So it's, you know, self-selecting. But I do think a large majority of Russians really do support this war. And I think an important point, especially after Bucha, is that there's a, psych- a psychological component of it, too. Uh, they don't want to think that their country is capable of such horrors. Yeah. They want to believe that they're on the side of good. Like, I think most people, most human beings most want to country. believe that they're yeah. moral and good and that their country yeah. is good. What's your take on this? Do you, well, do you think 90% of the Russian people are opposed to this uh, war as, as the... Businessman. No, I think I think Yuli is right that there are a great many who actually genuinely support the war, but that is based on a completely controlled information environment. And I think the Russians will be reasonable people when they get real information about what's really happening in Ukraine. Uh, I don't think that you're going to find that there's this resistance to that. It's just that Putin is carefully trying to curate what it is that his own people are are, are hearing. And I think this missile test that we saw today plays into this because. With the failures that they've had militarily, Putin needs to find ways to continue to convey images of strength. And so launching a new ICBM is a way to try to compensate for the fact that, well, it hasn't gone the way on the ground that he wanted it to. So uh, I interviewed Zelensky, President Zelensky, on Friday, and I asked him if he was worried what the, F- uh, the CIA director, Burns, had been warning about. Maybe Putin would go so far as to use uh, a tactical news- nuke. Here's part of what he said to me. Yeah. Not only me. I think we, all, all, all of the world, all the countries have to be warned because you, you know that it can be not real information, but it, but it can be true, true because when they begin to speak about uh, one or another battles or uh, involve uh, enemies or nuclear weapons or chemi- some chemical you know, issues, chemical weapons, they should do it. They could do it. His larger point was Putin have such, has such a little regard for human life. Why wouldn't he? Uh, and it was interesting also that he gave that answer in English when most mm-hmm. of the rest of the interview was in, in Ukrainian. Do you think Putin would use a nuke? I think he absolutely could. I don't know if he will, but I think he could. He has put it on the table several times. He has not taken it off the table. And so far he's done everything he said he would do or and done things that he said he wouldn't do. So I don't mm-hmm. see a reason to take it off the table for him. I think he is totally capable of doing it. And then what does the West do if it's a tactical nuke? Do we respond in kind? How do we respond if we don't respond forcefully enough? How do we live in a world where battlefield use of nuclear weapons is now a thing? It opens up a whole new can of worms. What do you think? Well, I think Putin is using the threat of nuclear use as a way to try to cause the West to hesitate, Mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that we don't provide everything that we possibly could provide to Ukraine to help them out. And I think, as Julia says, any battlefield use of a nuclear weapon is a game changer. It it is changing the nature of war that we've seen ever since nuclear weapons were first used in World War II. Uh, And that is not something that we want to see. I think we need to do more to actually be warning Putin off any nuclear use and that there will be a forceful response if he does do that. 
and I think that way we, we can actually turn this threat back on him as well, too. This is not going to go well for, for Russia if they do use nuclear weapons. Ambassador Bokel, Julia Yoffe, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Coming up next, the scene in Mariupol and what may be the last chance to save tens of thousands of Ukrainians caught in the crossfire. Plus, the New Deal aiming to address the migrant crisis as we learn thousands of Ukrainian refugees have also tried to cross borders into the U.S. Stay with us. And we're back with our world lead today. President Zelensky of Ukraine warned the Russian assault on civilians in the surrounded port city of Mariupol is, quote, far more scary and large-scale than in Borodyanka. Borodyanka, of course, is the Kiev suburb that we visited where I saw the ruthless devastation inflicted by Putin's army firsthand. Apartment buildings, residential, civilian apartment buildings, gone. Now all eyes are on the steel plant still under Ukrainian control where hundreds of Ukrainian civilians are sheltering in the basements of the facility. As CNN's Matt Rivers reports, that is only a fraction of the tens of thousands of terrified Ukrainians still in Mariupol, desperately waiting for a safe passage out. The Azovstal steel plant, housing Mariupol's last line of defense. If the defenders here fall, so goes the city. A few days ago, George Kuparashvili says he was right in the heart of the fight. Honestly, I tell you that i never seen such a brutal, devastating war because Russians are just trying to execute the civilians. He spoke to us via video chat from an undisclosed location. Severely injured during the fighting, he says he was smuggled out to recover. He is a Georgian national and a commander in the Azov Battalion, one of the few remaining units left defending the city. He says he was among the soldiers fighting the Russians, while at the same time taking care of hundreds of civilians sheltering in the area some of which purportedly seen here in video CNN can't verify, posted on the Ukrainian government's social media. So how long do you think your group can take care of all of those people and, and yourselves? That's hard to answer. That's hard to answer for me. Time is short. That's what I'm going to say. Tens of thousands of citizens in besieged Mariupol still need to be evacuated. On Wednesday, a slight glimmer of hope. A humanitarian corridor agreed to by both sides, where civilians could evacuate Mariupol, heading to Mangush, then Berdyansk, and then onward, eventually to the Ukrainian-held city of Zaporizhia. The city's mayor urging people to use it. He said, dear people of Mariupol, during these long and incredibly difficult days you survived in inhuman conditions, you may have heard different things, but I want you to know the main thing. They are waiting for you in Zaporizhia. It's safe there. Video from Mariupol city council shows buses lined up ready to take those who wanted to leave. It's unclear how many got on, but a regional official says fewer people left than he hoped. For many, leaving is a difficult choice. It requires trusting that the Russian military will not harm those trying to leave. And yet this is the same military that has spent the entire war systematically targeting civilians across the country. And yet the city has become unlivable. For the military units still resisting, Kuparashvili says they're caring for soldiers and civilians, sometimes with the same injuries due to Russian shelling. It's a triad, child or soldier. And I've seen a lot of times there was a soldier say, go ahead, take a child. 
A commander inside the steel plant has urged the international community to set up an evacuation route using a third party, another country that might be able to facilitate the transfer of soldiers and civilians to safety. If that doesn't happen, Kubarashvili says Russia will continue the bombardment and it will end only one way. There will be nobody left in this area. There will be dead, all the children, I'm not talking about the soldiers, but the civilians will be eliminated. It is going to be on us, on a civilized world. And Jake, I asked, uh, I asked George, why won't the members of the Azov Battalion, of which he is a part, surrender? And he said that they are so utterly convinced that if they surrender, the Russians hate them so much, they believe that they would be killed in Russian custody. And he said they're not going to, quote, give them the pleasure. He said there is no chance that they will surrender. They will either be evacuated or they will die fighting. Jake. Matt Rivers in Lviv, Ukraine. Thank you for that report. Coming up next, the warnings of a new supply chain traffic jam with the backup possibly originating at one of the biggest port cities in the world. Stay with us. Do the money lead in another challenge for the Biden administration, a supply chain backlog with no sign that it's going to pick up anytime soon. One major slowdown is in China, specifically Shanghai, the world's third largest city, which is still on lockdown due to COVID cases. That means, of course, cargo sitting in Shanghai ports cannot move. As CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich reports for us now, some companies are warning the White House that this backlog could soon have a life-threatening ripple effect here in the United States. This small box made of something called board stock plays a big role in the pharmaceutical supply chain. Without the products that we produce, the pharmaceutical product cannot get to the market. The Challenge Printing Company says it packages more than 1,000 drugs, including life-saving cancer prescriptions. But getting them out the door quickly... As of right now, it's been very challenging. It's because there's still intense consumer demand on a supply chain still in crisis mode. The company says it can't get materials from their suppliers in order to package these critical drugs. Everything from FDA-approved inks, board stock, and paper. There are no substitutions. What is the warning that you're issuing? We're facing a potential public health crisis in this country if it's not properly addressed by the government. The Department of Health and Human Services. The company is raising the alarm, writing to over 15 government agencies, including the White House. What is the administration's response and what are they doing to address this? The president's made clear that he's willing and ready to do what it takes to make sure that life-saving medicines or other critical inputs in our economy get where they need to get. But the relentless slowdown of the global supply chain is working against consumer demand. Flexport, a freight forwarding company that tracks cargo around the world, is watching China closely where exports are stalled because of COVID lockdowns. It's a serious danger. I don't think we've sounded the all clear at all. Instead, hundreds of cargo ships sitting idle at Chinese ports, waiting for goods to transport. But Flexport says eventually they're heading this way, potentially creating major traffic jams at U.S. ports again. This is not just, you know, Americans wanting to have so many imported consumer goods. Even those goods that are produced or packaged in the United States, you need to bring in parts, ingredients, whatever. And when those get interrupted, it interrupts American production as well. 
and a challenge printing company, they have a new drug to package, COVID Therapeutics, bringing another new challenge. The company says months-long delays for millions of rolls of this foil from overseas. How critical is this as part of the prescription drug? No this, no drugs. I mean, without this, you can't give out drugs in a Ziploc bag. The White House says that they are aware and addressing these issues with pharmaceutical packaging, but they're also addressing the supply chain largely with a two-prong approach. First, addressing immediate issues like unclogging U.S. ports, but also long-term procedures like creating a digital platform where companies can share data and any issues they may be seeing. But Jake, they are watching China very closely. The White House calling what they're seeing there concerning. Yet there is not a whole lot they can do, Jake, because the U.S., of course, is just one part of the global supply chain. Jake? That's a disaster coming down the road. Vanessa, your cabinet, you're just uh, sounding the alarm. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Ahead. Oh, boy. Could the mask mandates come back just as fast as they went away? One of the main reasons why the Biden administration might actually appeal this week's big ruling down in Florida. Stay with us. Turning to our healthy now, the Justice Department says the Biden administration could soon appeal the ruling that's striking down mask mandates for public transportation if the CDC determines that the requirement is necessary to protect public health. Now, analysts say an appeal could be a risky move for the Biden administration, generating further confusion for Americans, potentially creating a precedent limiting the CDC's authority to enforce future public health rules, all to uphold a mandate that was already set to expire in less than two weeks. Here to discuss, former CDC director Dr. Tom Frieden. Dr. Frieden, thanks for joining us. So COVID hospitalizations have started to tick up in parts of the northeastern United States, but nationally, they're at nearly the lowest levels of the pandemic. Does that suggest to you that the mandate on trains and planes is not necessary anymore? Things like mandates are always going to be judgment calls. There's a clear need to recommend that people wear masks. And if you're immunosuppressed or otherwise medically vulnerable and people around you aren't masking, you need to up your mask game and use an N95. But Jake, as you indicated, the bigger issue here is if a legal fight results in undermining the ability of federal and maybe even state and local public health departments to protect people, not just from this variant, but future variants or future health threats, then we are less safe. Some transit systems and airports are still requiring masks, and that's creating a confusing confusing situation for people. Uh, What's your advice to those who are unsure about whether they should continue to wear masks. I'm not talking about immunosuppressant individuals. Let's say somebody who's just a little overweight or somebody who's a smoker, somebody who's over 60. Should they wear masks? When in doubt, mask up. It's a very small price to pay for a very large reduction in the risk that you will get infected, be at risk for long COVID, possibly get seriously ill or make someone else seriously ill. The CDC's Vaccine Advisory Committee just wrapped up a meeting a short while ago. They're looking at second booster shots. Now, the FDA has authorized the shots for people 50 and older. Would you like to see this expanded? Is it necessary for everyone to get a second booster? It doesn't look like the current data suggests that everyone should get a booster, but certain people would likely benefit from it. Data that we have from 
other countries strongly suggests that people who are older, people who are immunosuppressed, get substantial benefit from an additional booster dose. So definitely something that we would recommend. One of the things that's quite concerning, Jake, is that in this country, there are more than 15 million people over the age of 65 who are not up to date with their vaccines. They haven't gotten a first booster. And, and that's a problem because whether it's Omicron or the next variant, they're quite vulnerable to severe illness. We're still having hundreds of deaths a day from COVID. So we are not fully out of the woods. Much as we wish this pandemic were over, it's not yet. The CDC has the recommendations they have, but they often point to how a perfectly healthy human should act. For example, it's very easy to surpass guidelines for daily salt intake and just one meal. How should Americans view what the CDC says as we move into this new phase of COVID? We need to think about balancing risks and benefits. If on the one hand you're healthy and wanna go about your life and you're not at risk of exposing others who are vulnerable, then go for it. If on the other hand, you have immunosuppression or you live with someone who's in their 80s or 90s, you really need to think twice about possibly getting infected. There are a few things that are facts, fact. Masks drastically reduce the risk of getting infected, fact. You can spread this virus even if you feel perfectly fine. And those two facts together indicate that at certain times, masking can protect you, your family, and people around you. All right, Dr. Tom Frieden, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. And our politics lead, right now, President Biden is meeting with top defense officials at the White House as Russia announces a test launch of its new intercontinental ballistic missile. And moments ago, the president, speaking with reporters ahead of this important meeting, CNN's MJ Lee joins us now live from the White House. And MJ, we just heard from President Biden as he's meeting with senior U.S. military officials. Tell us more. He is having this very important meeting with some of his top military officials. And one of the things that he said to reporters is that he said there are weapons going into Ukraine, being provided to Ukraine almost on a daily basis. He also said that there needs to be a calibration sort of based on what is actually happening out on the ground in Ukraine. That is certainly the assessment that we expect him to discuss with his top military officials. The weapons comment is pretty striking, given that we have reported that you U.S. officials are now currently discussing the possibility of an additional weapons package amounting to around $800 million. This comes, of course, as we are seeing intensifying fighting, uh, particularly in the eastern region. And there have been concerns that Ukrainian forces are simply going to run out of equipment, including ammunition. And we have heard so often from various Ukrainian officials that they really need uh, okay, to get MJ, more weapons. Gonna, MJ, we have, uh, we have some sound from the Biden meeting. Let's let play that. General Milley uh, uh, and all our other outstanding military leaders around this cabinet table, I'm honored to welcome you to the White House. I really mean I'm honored to welcome you. Above all, I want to thank each of families and the long-standing service that you've all put in. I uh, also want to recognize the groundbreaking nature of this gathering. Um, for the first time, in the proud history of the armed forces, we not only have highly, 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 highly qualified women as vice president, but as deputy secretary of defense and two women combatant commanders. 
And it's an important milestone, I think, that speaks to uh, how we're harnessing the strength and diversity of our country and making sure women succeed in the military throughout their careers. As I said when I got elected, I didn't think people thought I meant it, but my administration is going to look like America. And I mean that sincerely, not just in the military, but across the board. That's where our strength comes from, in my opinion. And uh, today, I want to hear from all of you on your assessments on what you're seeing in the field and across our forces. And the strategic environment is evolving rapidly in the world, but that means our plans and force posture have to be equally dynamic. Things are changing. And, uh, you know, ensuring that the security of the American people, our interest and the interests of our allies, uh, means having to constantly adapt to anything and everything that's happening around the world. And uh, we're seeing this very day uh, the need for adapt adaptation as a consequence of us standing with Ukraine against Putin's brutal and unjustified war. And, uh, and I want to applaud the exceptional work you're doing to arm and equip brave Ukrainians to defend their nation. I don't know about you, but I've been to Ukraine a number of times before the war. I've spoken to the Rada. I was deeply involved in what was going on in Ukraine. And I knew they were tough and proud, but I tell you what, they're tougher and more proud than I thought. I'm amazed what they're doing with your help in terms of providing advice and, uh, and, and the, the weaponry we're providing, along with the rest of NATO. Weapons and ammunition are flowing in daily, and we're seeing just how vital our alliances and partnerships are around the world. Our allies are stepping up, amplifying the impact of our response, and NATO is united, focused, and energized as has ever been. When I was a kid in the United States Senate in my 30s and into my 40s, I was uh, chairman of the NATO subcommittee, the Foreign Relations Committee. I, not because of me or any particular thing, but I've never seen NATO as united. And all the, I, I'm confident in my view, just this is Biden speaking, that uh, I don't think that uh, Putin counted on being able to hold us together. And I've spoken well over 150 times to uh, our NATO allies, either like yesterday or there were four, how many on? Twelve. How many? Twelve. Twelve. Uh, yesterday for a couple hours. Uh, they, uh, they are, um, they're, they're, they're stepping up. And uh, the same is true in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, where our allies are the foundation for the future we want to see in that vital region of the world. Your central indispensable mission to deter aggression from all our enemies, if required, is, uh, is on display. To fight to win wars remain critical to American power. As Commander-in-Chief, I, uh, I rely on your advice and maintain our, to maintain our military edge and remain the ultimate guarantor of America's security. But quite frankly, even though I'd been Vice President for uh, eight years and a senator for 36, I, uh, I didn't fully appreciate that uh, how the rest of the world literally looks to us as the leader of the free world. I mean, looks to us in very precise, specific ways and uh, something you all fully, fully understand. Um, and uh, I rely, as I said, on your advice, uh, your, your advice and your ability to maintain our military edge. Uh, and, uh, you know, in return, I promise you, and I hope it's been demonstrated since I've been president, 
that we as a nation will uphold the sacred duty we have. We owe you, our military men and women, to prepare, properly equip you before we send you into harm's way, and when we do, to care for those and your family when you come home. And that's why we're doing so much at the, at the Veterans Affairs as well. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a sacred obligation. And so I want to thank you all again. I'm looking forward to our discussion. And I uh, thank the press for coming in. Thank you. Mr. President, how soon do you plan to approve the next round? Mr. President, how soon do you plan to approve the next round of military assistance to the Ukrainians? Doesn't sound like he's going to take any of those questions. Let's go back to CNN's MJ Lee at the White House. MJ, uh, your thoughts on what the president just said. Yeah, you know, one thing that really stood out is the president saying that this was a fast evolving situation on the ground in Ukraine. And he also said in front of his military leaders uh, that our force posture, the U.S.'s force posture, uh, has to remain dynamic. And we have seen these kinds of discussions playing out uh, in public as well. And we are seeing that reflected in some of the announcements that we have seen uh, coming out of the U.S. And that, of course, includes what we were talking about before we went to the president's sound uh, about discussion of uh, an additional weapons package when currently, as we speak, there is equipment that is uh, being sent to Ukraine and arriving in the region from the previously approved package of around $800 million. So I think at this point in time, U.S. officials are keen on uh, emphasizing that there is uh, sort of a recognition and that the U.S. and its allies are certainly hearing sort of the very desperate cries for help that we have been hearing uh, from various Ukrainian officials. Uh, one other part that really stood out, uh, there was it was a little bit difficult to uh, hear exactly what he said and all of that. Uh, but one thing that I did make out was when he said the rest of the world looks to us as the leader of the free world. Uh, obviously, there is a real sense of responsibility and a real sense of responsibility to really react in kind and to sort of meet the moment. Uh, one thing that I asked uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki in the briefing room just a few moments ago was just the question of how has the president been processing some of these horrific images of civilian deaths that are so readily available, videos, photos uh, coming out of Ukraine. And she said that he has been processing this uh, just as in the same way that other Americans are, that he is responding with grief uh, and sadness and that he, uh, you know, is very consumed uh, by this conflict, that he obviously has many other priorities. But this is certainly something that is taking up uh, so much of his time right now, Jake. The U.S. is unveiling a new round of sanctions on Russia. Who are they targeting this time? Yeah, this new round of sanctions uh, includes a major uh, commercial bank in Russia, also 40-plus uh, individuals and enti entities that are close to a prominent Russian oligarch named Konstantin uh, Malafayev. And a range of reasons why these individuals and entities are being targeted, uh, including acting on behalf of the Russian government, evading sanctions, and spreading uh, pro-Kremlin propaganda. Uh, the, there are also companies that, that are being targeted uh, that are in Russia's virtual currency mining industry. So that is something uh, new that we haven't heard before. Uh, this also comes as the State Department is announcing a new round of uh, visa restrictions on hundreds of Russian nationals. Uh, these are people that they have determined uh, have worked in support of the war uh, or have committed human rights violations. So obviously this is sort of the other uh, end of the spectrum in terms of the U.S.'s actions. We are seeing equipment and weapons being sent to Ukraine. There are also the economic sanctions and punishment that 
that the U.S. and its allies are continuing to roll out as well, Jake. All right, MJ Lee at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Once considered the breadbasket of the world, next, the struggles facing Ukrainian farmers who are now finding themselves on the front lines of this war. Stay with us. Welcome to the Lean Up Jake Tapper. This hour, the hits keep coming for Netflix, and I'm not talking about popular shows like Ozark. After losing subscribers, Netflix just lost billions of dollars. So what are the streaming giants' plans to turn things around? Plus, they grow the grain that feeds most of Europe, and now these Ukrainian farmers are not only fighting for their livelihoods, they're fighting for their lives. And leading this hour, Ukrainian officials say the evacuation corridor for hundreds of of innocent civilians, including children, trapped in Mariupol, did not work as planned. Earlier today, President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine said 120,000 Ukrainians were still stuck in that besieged city that's now under constant Russian bombardment. A Ukrainian Marine inside the Mariupol steel plant where civilians are trapped released a video message saying he does not know how much time they have left. Two senior U.S. officials telling CNN the U.S. has assessed that Russia has made as of now no major territorial gains so far since they launched their new offensive in eastern Ukraine. CNN Chief National Security Correspondent Jim Shido joins us now live from Lviv, Ukraine, in the western part of the country with more on his reporting. And Jim, we're just a few days into this offensive, so how significant is this assessment? It is early, but early on at least, uh, the the Russian forces not showing uh, any new remarkable ability to gain gain territory and do so quickly. Uh, The U.S. has observed what it believes to be probing attacks by Russian forces, testing perhaps Ukrainian military defenses in that region. But big picture going forward, the U.S. does not see that Russia has solved the problems that led to Uh, It's slow progress and eventual reversal in the north, things like supply lines. Uh, They're also looking at the weather in the east. It's muddy there. Uh, They expect that to confine much of the Russian armor, uh, supply trucks, etc., to roads. Uh, And that's a problem because we've seen that. You and I have both seen that, Jake, here. And when they're on the roads, those Russian uh, convoys are very vulnerable to Ukrainian ambushes. And and Jim, Ukrainian President Zelensky says that he thinks uh, up to 120,000 Ukrainians remain trapped in Mariupol. The Ukrainian deputy prime minister says today's evacuation quarter, quote, did not work as planned. So what are you learning? So I spoke to a number of Ukrainian officials today, and the fact is they're skeptical, right? Because the track record of Russia respecting, abiding by the rules of humanitarian quarters is lousy. In fact, uh, there's a lot of evidence of Russian forces deliberately shelling at times humanitarian corridors, quote unquote, uh, even when civilians are using those. I spoke earlier today to an advisor uh, to Zelensky's chief of staff, and I asked him, does he trust uh, Russia's word that the people leaving Mariupol would be safe? Listen to his answer. Their plan is to take them as, a, as, a, as a hostages. Yeah. And of course, the Ukrainian soldiers are not ready to give up. So their proposal is give up, and uh, we, you're going to be in prison in Russia maybe after this. Of course, uh, your Ukrainian soldiers are going to fight until then. Now, uh, what what uh, our view on this? That uh, it, it has to be humanitarian corridor for Ukrainians mm-hmm. to leave to Ukrainian territory, controlled mm-hmm. by Kiev government, not to Russia. What Ukrainian forces trapped there in Mariupol and some officials are hoping for is some sort of third party to monitor, guarantee a safe passage out, not just for civilians, but those soldiers hold up there. It's not clear exactly how that would happen. There's not 
precedent for that in this conflict so far. But tonight, again, and I was in touch with one member of the military, the Ukrainian military, they're trapped uh, in that steel plant tonight, and they're worried, and they're scared, and understandably so. And, of course, the civilians there, including women and children, perhaps even more so. Jim Chiodo reporting live from Lviv, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Joining us live to discuss Republican Congressman Mike McCall of Texas. He's the ranking member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He just got back from a congressional trip to the Polish border with Ukraine. Uh, Congressman, thanks for joining us. We have some images of you meeting with U.S. armed forces while you were there. How has the situation changed on the ground since your last visit to the region in March? Well, you know, I was there three weeks ago. uh, 100,000 refugees were pouring into Poland uh, every day. Uh, Three weeks later, hardly any refugees are coming into Poland, but rather a lot of uh, unmarked 18-wheeler trucks going into Ukraine from Poland. Uh, That's some good news because those are weapons uh, going into Ukraine to help the Ukrainians win this fight uh, that they must win. And and it's, yeah, I've been critical. We should have gotten these in sooner, but I was very uh, pleased to see that. In addition, the 82nd Airborne now is surrounded by uh, basically a Patriot battery system, which will harden that uh, target that we know the Russians uh, want to go after. You also met with the leadership of Romania on your trip just days before Russia ended up testing this new intercontinental ballistic missile. How nervous are European leaders right now? You know, very, because if you're in uh, Poland or Romania, uh, you know the Russians better than anybody. Uh, They're very worried still about Odessa that uh, Putin will not give up. And that's what we heard from the prime minister of Romania, who was secretary of defense previously, that that he's all in. Uh, This is going to be something he's going to put everything he has to extend this land bridge, even past Crimea to Odessa. Uh, Then he could go into Moldova, where uh, he has 8,000 troops there, and then they're up on the border of Romania. That's the worst case scenario. The good news is, is that the Ukrainians uh, were able to down a major uh, Russian uh, ship, you know, off the coast in the Black Sea with their own anti-ship. And the UK is now sending a lot of anti-ship weapons that are far superior to what they were using. Uh, So that gives us some hope. The regional military governor of Luhansk, which is in the Donbass region, tells CNN that 80 percent of his region's territory, 80 percent is under Russian control. And he warns, quote, Russia is certainly not going to stop here. And he says, quote, there is no safe town in Ukraine. You've said that Ukraine can win this war if its fighters get the weapons they need. Do you still believe that? And, and, are, and are they getting those weapons? I do think they can win this. I think the Russians overplayed their hand. I think they have demonstrated incompetence. And I think an important point, uh, point Jake, is that, you know, when I asked, are these the same worn out troops that evacuated Kiev, went up through Belarus to go around to east and, you know, east of Donbass to then go in. Uh, the answer is yes. They don't have any fresh recruits coming in. These are the same demoralized Russian troops. Uh, but the Ukrainians need these weapons uh, to win this thing. And that's why it's so paramount uh, that we ship them in. I'm glad the president has drawn down on the $800 million that we appropriate in Congress uh, to help them win this fight. There's really too much at stake here now for Ukraine to lose this uh, war. Multiple sources tell CNN the U.S. is prepping another $800 million weapons package for Ukraine if approved. This would bring the total U.S. assistance to some $3.4 billion since the invasion began in February. 
How long can the U.S. keep that up? Uh, are these weapons infusions sustainable? Do European partners need to do much, much more? They do. Uh, I would argue that NATO is stepping up to the plate. Uh, the eastern flank of NATO, uh, remember they're on the east uh, side that are next to Russia. They have a lot of Russian weapons that they're dumping into Ukraine. And then it's incumbent upon NATO and the United States to backfill uh, these orders. That, that could be another program you and I could talk about in terms of our supply uh, chain with respect to these weapons. Uh, but that's the current state. We have to bring Patriot battery systems into, say, Slovakia, as they put in the S-300 that's anti-aircraft, anti-missile you know, capability. How concerned are you about any of this military hardware getting into the wrong hands once it crosses into yeah. Ukraine? Yeah, that's always a concern. I sign off on all foreign military weapon sales. Uh, the, the, the good news here is that the, the Stinger missiles, uh, we took out the very sensitive chip information. Uh, the Javelins are old. Uh, they're very old stockpile equipment. Um, you know, the S-300s are Russian. We would never put a Patriot battery system in there uh, because we don't want the Russians to capture that. So everything we're throwing in really has no... Uh, value, if you will, or new value to the Russians, uh, which is the good news. I am worried about Mariupol, uh, humanitarian-wise. We intercepted, and it was made public, in the initial battle plans that we were uh, briefed on in the classified space last fall, that killing civilians was part of their battle plan. And we saw that play out in Bucha, and I have no reason to believe that's not going to change in Mariupol. And I think when the dust clears, you're going to see a lot of really awful atrocities taking place, which is why I passed my war crimes bill on the House floor uh, last week. CNN's reporting that the U.S. military is keeping a constant watch on Russia's nuclear arsenal and that Secretary Austin is being briefed two or three times a week by the top U.S. general overseeing U.S. nuclear weapons and defenses. How much do you fear a worst-case scenario with Putin using nukes? If he gets desperate, you know, as I've said, like a scorpion backed into a corner. Remember, he's brought the butcher of Syria who dropped barrel bombs and worked with Assad to drop chemical weapons on the civilian population in Syria. This is very disturbing that now the butcher of Syria has been tasked to deal with the Donbass. Uh, I worry that we could see chemical weapons. Uh, we know they've, they've dropped a lot of really bad stuff, thermobaric bombs into, into the Ukraine and other uh, weapons, but if they drop a uh, chemical and if they use short range tactical nukes, I think it changes uh, this uh, uh, this uh, warfare uh, altogether. In fact, this was an issue we brought up with NATO and Brussels is how much can we sit back and watch uh, before we react uh, and take action? And I we don't want this to happen, but it would escalate the war. And I, I hope he doesn't do this. But as a matter of desperation, we have to be prepared and we have to have these discussions. House Foreign Affairs ranking Republican Mike McCall of Texas. Thanks so much. Good to see you as always. Coming up, a Russian billionaire has harsh words for Vladimir Putin and an insult for the Russian military. But do Russian citizens agree? Stay with us. And we're back with our world lead. A Russian billionaire is blasting Russia's unprovoked war against Ukraine and calling on the West to do more to stop the massacre. Oleg Tinkoff writes this on Instagram, quote, I don't see a single beneficiary of this insane war. Innocent people and soldiers are dying. Generals waking up with a hangover have realized they have a shit army 
And how could the army be good when everything else in the country is mired in nepotism, groveling, and servility? Joining us live to discuss are CNN senior international correspondent Matthew Chance and international diplomatic editor Nick Robertson. Nick, who is this businessman? Uh, Why is this Instagram post, in your view, so remarkable? Yeah, self-made billionaire, started up a digital bank, made a lot of money at it, seen the value drop off over the past few years, sponsored a a major European cycling team that that notched up some big international race successes. So this guy uh, was certainly a larger-than-life character in that sense that he was well-known, could rub shoulders with the other oligarchs rubbing shoulders around Putin. So when he criticizes Putin right now, the language is using it, it's not just criticizing the way the war's being fought, but essentially criticizing the last 22 years of Putin's rule. The nepotism, the greed, the groveling has created this current system, a weak army. Um, He says 90% of Russians are opposed to the war. Of course, that's completely counter to what the Kremlin says. So this takes a strong man to stand up and say this, knowing what has happened to other oligarchs that have criticized Putin in the past. Some poisoned, some forced out the country, some in jail. Uh, Will it change the course of the war? Not clear. Matthew, how much influence do you think Timken could have on public opinion in Russia? Is there any chance his views could influence Putin? Well, I mean, I think, you know, Nick's right in the sense that, you know, these are very strong words and it's a very brave man. Uh, that writes these words uh, when you're in that position, particularly when you've got business interests uh, inside inside Russia. It might influence Putin negatively, certainly towards him. In, in terms of, you know, what audience is going to be able to see these uh, this message uh, in Russia? Well, that's very much debatable. Not a lot of people have Instagram in Russia, I don't think. And those that do have it, they've been blocked from it. You can access it through VPN, uh, etc. But, you know, it, it's not going to get a very wide airing, shall we say, inside Russia itself is clearly, obviously, the biggest audience for this message is going to be people outside of Russia, people in the West who, who are going to be reading it and circulating it. Um, but, but even if it was um, you know, viewed in Russia, it, it's not going to make much impact on the Kremlin as long as it's just the views of one man. It's only if that view starts to become widespread and the population at large start to adopt the opinion that this war is costing too much, that it's bloody, that it's incompetent and that it is wrong, that the Kremlin is really going to sit up, take notice and potentially change its, uh, its policies. Nick, uh, Russia just carried out a test launch of its new intercontinental ballistic missile. Putin called it a success. Uh, U.S. officials were warned about it ahead of time by Russia, and they do not seem concerned. Uh, Why not? Yeah, this is a missile system that Russia's been talking about for a few years. It's an upgrade of a Soviet-era intercontinental ballistic missile. U.S. technology can track its path from northern Russia right to the sort of furthest eastern (coughs) peninsula flying towards, you would note there, uh, towards the United States. But Russia here had announced that it was going to do this test and had created a window of when it was going to do that test. So its launching is not a surprise. What it can do um, is not a surprise in a way. Uh, And so therefore, you know, Russia has sort of mitigated against a misreading that it is launching something new towards the United States. I think it's also also worth noting on balance here that the United States itself has stayed away from doing 
similar types of tests during this period of heightened tension. So it's still a very big message uh, for Russia, perhaps again for domestic consumption, but also an international one as well, saying, hey, we've got this, we're doing this. But there's much propaganda as Putin can get out of it at home is going to generate the narrative he wants. We're still strong. And Matthew, uh, Alexei Navalny, who, that's the imprisoned Russian opposition leader, he's urging French voters to vote to re-elect President Emmanuel Macron in the upcoming French elections. Uh, Navalny is the subject, obviously, of a new CNN documentary that's airing Sunday. Do you think his anti-corruption campaign, his pro-democracy message, has gained momentum since the war began? It's, it's, it's hard to say, isn't it? I mean, look, we, we've witnessed such horrors uh, in the past couple of months uh, at the hands of Russia inside Ukraine. To some extent, the terrible things that, that happened to Alexei Navalny and the, and the corruption he ex, he's exposed over many years have been overshadowed by the much worse crimes that we've seen unfold you know, in towns and cities and are unfolding now across, across Ukraine. Um, at the same time, you know, that campaign that he's been at the head of uh, for so many years, in some ways foreshadows some of the incompetence, some of the ruthlessness that the Putin regime uh, uh, is capable of. They were seeing it in Ukraine, but it was foreshadowed in all the sort of like corrupt, anti-corruption campaigns and the investigations that Alexei Navalny um, has been a, a, at the head of. And of course, you know, for, first and foremost, his own poisoning uh, you know, by, by suspected government agents uh, inside, inside Russia. It, it's also, Jake, an important reminder that as Russia is sanctioned around the world for its activities in Inside, inside Ukraine. There are millions of Russians that for years have been campaigning and standing against the regime uh, in the Kremlin. Matthew and Nick, thank you so much. And as I mentioned, don't miss the unbelievable true story of the man who took on Putin and lived to expose the truth. The Sundance Award winning CNN film Navalny airs Sunday at 9 p.m. only on CNN. Coming up next, a look at how Putin's war is threatening the farmers in Ukraine who help feed most of Europe. Stay with us. Thousands of innocent civilians in Ukraine have been killed and millions of Ukrainians forced to leave their country. That's millions of people unable to work, not sure where their next meal will come from. On Tuesday, the U.S. Treasury Secretary warned that 10 million people worldwide could be pushed into poverty because of soaring food prices, and she blamed Russia. CNN's Ed Lavendera talked to some Ukrainian farmers who know all too well how Putin's unprovoked war is killing the livelihoods of those who help feed much of Europe. Serhii Yaichuk runs a one-man dairy operation. He has six cows on a little farm just 15 miles from the front lines of the battlefield in southern Ukraine. But neither Russian soldiers or falling rockets have stopped the 49-year-old from tending to his work. That is Sergei's house there, just in the distance, and there is an unexploded rocket that landed this close. Landed here about a week ago. Did you hear that rocket land? Everything happened before my eyes. The explosions erupted all around him when this strike hit. Russian rockets often target his village of 500 people. We were covered with dust, just dust and shrapnel all the way here. I fell to the ground, crawling, not feeling my legs or arms. It was scary. For those who have not gone through this, you would not believe it. Sergei keeps one eye on his herd and the other eye on the war. 
So these are Sergei's six dairy cows. And if you notice, he has them spread out. He wants to separate them so they don't all get killed in one strike. He must keep the cows alive. This is the life of a farmer in Ukraine. Maxim Krivenko and his family grow the traditional Ukrainian crops of wheat and sunflower on these lush, wide-open fields near the village of Yavkine. But the war has upended his business. It's been unfortunate for all of us. Basically, everything has shut down, and we aren't working now. Maxim says the cost of fuel and grain seeds have skyrocketed. It's difficult to find parts to repair farm machinery. He's supposed to plant this year's wheat crop in the coming weeks, but if the fighting returns to this land, it won't happen. So this is the storage area where they keep their sunflower seeds, but they haven't been able to sell it because of the war. Maxime is also stuck with an entire season sunflower seed harvest. It just sits in this storage space. Will this war kill your business? It's already killed it. We have stockpiled our wheat production and our sunflowers, but we aren't able to sell them. So I would say it is the beginning of the end. Ukraine is considered the world's breadbasket, along with Russia, producing 30% of the world's wheat exports. The United Nations says this war is creating a food production crisis not seen since World War II. Thousands of Ukrainian farmers now find themselves on the front lines of this war and their growing fields of wheat and sunflower have been turned into debris fields for missiles and rockets and other explosives. The wreckage of recent battles still sit in the farm fields. The body of a Russian soldier is buried next to this ammunition supply truck. Farm or fight is the choice facing frontline farmers. Sergei Yaychuk has already faced this life-and-death decision. When the Russians invaded this village last month, Serhi joined the fight. He was shot in the shoulder. Oh, wow. If the Russians come back, do you want to fight again? What else can we do? I'll take my pitchfork and go fight. I will defend my village until the end. When the war returns, the harvest will have to wait. Jake, the United Nations estimates that about 30% of Ukrainian of the Ukrainian agriculture fields will not be used to grow food this year. One small village mayor told us that Ukrainian farmers are good at two things, growing bread, making bread, and fighting. They will grow bread until they, ha until they have to start fighting, but if they have to fight, they will. Jake? Ed Levander in Kiev, Ukraine, thank you so much. Coming up, more revealing text messages about the 2020 election from the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Stay with us. Turning to our politics lead now, CNN has uncovered new text messages from Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Turns out while she was texting Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, about overturning the 2020 election, she was also having similar conversations with her longtime friend, Connie Hare. In addition to being Thomas's longtime friend, Hare is also the chief of staff for Texas Republican Congressman Louis Gohmert. Gohmert, you might recall, pushed two lawsuits that ended up in the Supreme Court challenging the election results. Our political panel joins us now. Alyssa, there are a lot of folks out there who say, how is it possible for Justice Clarence Thomas to be impartial when his wife is so in the thick of all this? 
Right, and it's a very fair and legitimate question. Uh, what I'd note about Connie Hare is she's part of this broader group that Jenny Thomas is part of called Groundswell that basically is a nationwide effort of conservatives to try to advance pro-Trump policies. It actually predated him. Um, I knew her when she was in the House. This is not someone I would say is in the mainstream of Republican politics, so it's interesting to now see that she has a relationship with a Supreme Court justice's wife. Um, I think the pressure is going to continue to ramp up um, on Justice Thomas. Uh, he, the easy solution would be for him to explain both his... Um, I, I do think that there's going to be growing calls for his recusal from January 6th-related um, potential rulings, but I also think he just needs to explain what his role was with regard to his wife. I think, though, the January 6th part of this is just a small piece. I think what you're going to see is more pressure for actual overall ethics reform. There was a poll just released. 54% of Americans actually would support an ethics policy for the Supreme Court. Part of the problem with, with Ginny Thomas, it's not just that these are her friends. These are people she is paid by. So her involvement in a number of organizations that have business before the court, from a financial perspective, I think raise more, raises as many questions as being the wife of a Supreme Court justice and advocating for overthrowing a fair election. Well, and the rules would have to be changed because she does have a right as a technically of private course. citizen to engage in politics. But that, that is the question. But does not this when call it comes for some your, kind of Certainly when it comes to your financial, you know, when it comes down to your financial well-being of your family and you're going to be then having your husband see a case where your own finances are impacted. I think that's where people start to get very uncomfortable. And she's been a problem. This has been a problem for a long time coming. Uh, I mean, I would like to point out that it's not just that she advocates conservative policies. Her Facebook feed is a garbage dump. I mean, it's just insanity. Well, I think that's what's striking to me is Justice Thomas is someone I've admired my whole life as a conservative, uh, you know, judicial uh, appointee. But he to have a wife who is so um, just maybe off the reservation in terms of her viewpoints and supporting some very conspiracy theories that do have serious repercussions, like what led to January 6th. That's scary, Um, but that's also, that's our society these days. I mean, you have elected members of Congress who espouse debunked conspiracy theories. Let's turn to the midterm elections, Laura. Um, Bad news for Democrats. Uh, The Cook Political Report published a new outlook for the midterms. It's looking even better for Republicans. David Wasserman writes, quote, President Biden's approval rating remains stuck at 42%. And if anything, the political environment has deteriorated for Democrats since January as inflation concerns have soared and Build Back Better has stalled. That means no Democrat in a single-digit Biden or Trump one district is secure. And even some seats Biden carried by double-digit margins in 2020 could come into play this fall, giving the GOP surprising reach opportunities. We're just about 200 days from the midterms. Mm -hmm. Can Democrats make up any ground, you think? I mean, in the House, a lot of the Democrats that I talk to a lot of them expect the House to flip. I mean, that's what history shows. It's also the fact that, that a lot of those seats that are swing seats are not looking good in the House. Where I see them focusing a lot more of their attention is the Senate, which is that uh, a lot of the Democratic pollsters or operatives that I talk to and the lawmakers think that they have a better shot at holding the Senate. Uh, but a lot of that does depend on you know, whether or not they are able to come together with this cohesive message, uh, which is that you know, I was talking to Biden's former 2020 pollster, Celinda Lake, recently, and she said that Biden needs to be out there traveling as much as he has been the past two weeks, even more so, because the biggest block of swing voters, she says, are women over the age of 50. And so they get a lot of their news from local news. So if Biden's out there more, then he could potentially tap into telling them, look, this is what I've done to date. 
whether it's the infrastructure bill, explaining that, explaining the rescue plan. And this is also what I plan to do in the future. You know, it's, it's suburban yeah. women, it's Hispanic voters. There are a couple of key blocks that both parties are going to be wrestling over. And in this latest shift from Cook, I think it's another eight seats. We're not just talking about red states. We're talking about blue states, districts in New York. We're talking about what we used to think of as swing states like North Carolina. So these are really important shifts, and they validate um, a, a strategy that we reported about in the last couple of weeks where Republicans were telling us at Axios they're going to put money into races that Biden holds, that Biden and Democrats held by as much as plus 16. So uh, conventional wisdom says uh, just stick with the single digits for races you can convert. They're saying we can make conversions in 13, 14, 15, 16 point what we thought were advantages for Democrats. So that's a massive closing of the gap. And when we talk about January 6th, this matters to people who think about democracy issues, but doesn't rank at the top of most voters lists. It's inflation, it's gas prices, it's crime, it's the border. And that's the other thing, uh, Karen, because a veteran Democratic pollster told Laura, quote, voters as sympathetic as they are to Ukraine are getting a little fatigued. Yes. And they're wondering, we're spending all this money abroad, but what are we spending here at home? And look, I think we all would agree that what's going on in Ukraine is very important to the United States, but maybe people don't feel it. Oh, well, but not at a time when everyone is already exhausted from COVID. We're exhausted from trying to organize our lives around COVID and gas prices are going up. And there's a lot of uncertainty, I think, that people still feel. And I would say, I would disagree slightly, not surprising because they're not listening to me, but what Democrats <laughs> ought to be doing. <laughs> Frankly, it's not about just what the president has done for them. It is about how can I? How can you help empower yourself to make change? You've got to get voters to see. We just came off of two months of doing a lot of grassroots work around KBJ, the the um, Justice, Court Justice, Supreme yeah. Court Justice, right? The energy is there, but to mobilize it and galvanize it, people have to feel empowered to take action in their own lives. And why is voting for you going to make my life better? It's got to stay focused on voters and less about. They really feel like. Washington is not listening, and we've got to make sure they feel that way. And Alyssa, I'm fascinated to know what you think about this endorsement by President Trump, former President Trump of J.D. Vance. Donald Trump Jr. was just featured in an event with uh, J.D. Vance. He's running for the Republican nomination for the Senate in Ohio. Uh, Vance was also given millions by PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel. Following, I mean, what was honestly a fairly surprising uh, Trump endorsement, especially because Vance has had really said some very, very nasty things about Trump comparing him to an American Hitler and that sort of thing. Were you surprised? I was a bit surprised because, yes, that's a uh, tape that's going to play on loop by his opponents. But to Laura's point, Republicans stand to pick up the House, I would guess, by double digits, as many as 24 seats. But the Senate is the whole game for Republicans. And Donald Trump's endorsements are actually hurting their chances in so many different places. I would say J.D. Vance is an example. Tim Ryan is a very formidable Democrat in even a red state. Um, playing against Lisa Murkowski um, in Alaska, I think, is dangerous and risks the Senate majority. So I think, um, I mean, thinking even further than 2022 to 2024, what Republicans are going to be looking at is who was actually helpful in getting us the Senate, the control of the Senate back. And if Donald Trump ends up wasting that with these bad endorsements, I think that could bode well for other 2024 contenders. And also he endorsed uh, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, which mm-hmm. is also rather surprising given Dr. Oz has a history of not saying anything nasty about Trump, but, but saying a lot of very liberal things. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about these endorsements is that, yes, they may not end up being the person that is favored right now in the primary. As Alyssa said, it could very well end up hurting them. But 
you know, a lot of the candidates like McCormick and others still very much are in line with Trump and support Trump and support his lies about the election. Yeah. I think, this chaos, I'm sorry, just this chaos in the GOP primaries, that's another opportunity Democrats need to be taking more advantage well, of. Well, we'll see if they take it. Thanks, Trump. <laughs> appreciate it. 45 billion reasons why Netflix is considering making some big changes to its streaming service. That's next. In our money lead, Netflix wiped out more than $50 billion of its value on the market today. The losses were in response to Netflix announcing that the company had lost 200,000 subscribers in the first part of this year, and they are expecting to lose 2 million more subscribers in the next quarter. The host of Reliable Sources, CNN's Brian Stelter, joins me now. Brian, this is the first time Netflix has lost subscribers in more than 10 years. What, what's driving this? Yeah, the company has enjoyed torrid growth, but now that's at an end. And here are the reasons, or you might say excuses, that Netflix is providing. Number one, COVID clouded the picture, executives say, by creating so much growth in 2020 and 2021. Second, password sharing means it's harder to grow membership because so many people are sharing accounts. And number three, many new streaming services have also launched, like Disney Plus and our parent company's HBO Max. Here are some of the other reasons that the company also identifies around the world, including inflation, quote, sluggish economic growth, increasing inflation, geopolitical events such as Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and some continued disruption from COVID are also likely having an impact as well. Basically, Netflix saying there are a lot of reasons here, even the invasion of Ukraine, because Netflix pulled its service from Russia. But all of this, at least a lot of this, other than the invasion, was predictable. This company has been facing these headwinds for years, and now it's finally really happening. Before today, Netflix's stock value had already dropped 40% from the previous year. What what could this indicate about the future of streaming, or do you think this is Netflix-specific? Uh, this is um, largely be- this is largely about Netflix because it is on top because it has led the way and other companies are now chasing what it has. But it does have uh, um, some sort of significance for other companies as well. It indicates that streaming is a win for consumers, but often a loss for investors, often a loss for the companies. Uh, now viewers have more options than ever, but it's hard to turn a profit. The traditional media business, in many ways, was more profitable for Wall Street, for investors, for shareholders. And this is a reckoning now, realizing that Netflix is not really a technology company like Apple. It's more of a content company. What does Netflix do now to to add subscribers and and how is this going to influence other streaming services? Well, it's going to get a lot harder to share passwords, that's for sure. Also, for the first time, Netflix is signaling a willingness to try an advertising-supported option, Uh, basically a service that will cost less but will carry advertising. Of course, that's the same sort of trade-off that viewers make here on CNN or other cable channels. It seems to me other streaming services are pursuing the same approach as well, looking for advertising-supported models. I suppose, Jake, everything in media, everything old is new again. And the future of media is all of the above. Television didn't replace radio. Streaming's not replacing television. It's all additive. And like I said, Jake, consumers ultimately benefit from this. There are more and more programs, more shows to watch than ever before, uh, but not necessarily investors. I think what's really interesting here for the next couple of years is whether Netflix can come up with new hit shows, new hit movies. Can that draw in more viewers or is there just so much competition in streaming now? So many options at our fingertips that Netflix can no longer be uh, the Godzilla of the streaming universe. All right, Brian Stelter, thank you so much. Appreciate it. In our pop culture lead, fact or fiction, a new HBO drama, Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty, is sparking outrage from Jerry West. Jerry West is the former L.A. Lakers player and executive and coach, and he's demanding a retraction 
and an apology from HBO and a letter from his lawyer to HBO and the show's producer. West claims that the way he is portrayed in the drama is a baseless and malicious assault on his character. We should note HBO is owned by CNN's parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery. CNN's Natasha Chen now explores how West is crying foul. This is Jerry West, former L.A. Lakers all-star player, later coach and executive, recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2019, here mentioning his guiding principles. Lead, protect, and assist whenever possible. His silhouette is on the NBA logo, but this is a younger Jerry West viewers are now seeing as depicted by actor Jason Clark in HBO's series Winning Time. Billboards, don't play the game of basketball! Jerry. The problem, according to West's attorneys, is that these things never happened. West's legal team demanded a retraction and apology, sending this letter to HBO and its parent company on Tuesday. It claims this was a false and defamatory portrayal of West, saying the series perpetuated an egregious wrong on a good and decent man and have harmed him in the process. The letter includes statements from nine people who worked with West who say he did not yell, scream, or drink excessively. And listen, I used to drink a lot of bourbon. I switched to vodka. You can smell it less. Just a tip. Former Lakers star Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote this in his newsletter. It's a shame the way they treat Jerry West, who has openly discussed his struggle with mental health, especially depression. Instead of exploring his issues with compassion as a way to better understand the man, they turn him into a wily Coyote cartoon to be laughed at. Sam Abick, senior NBA writer at The Athletic, says he knows West can run hot, but he recalls what happened once when West was unhappy with one of his articles. And he kind of came at me from the direction of, Sam, you're better than that. And it was almost more an, an intense grandfatherly type approach, if you will. It was not screaming. It wasn't yelling. And, and really, in my experience, that is more Jerry's style than it is, you know, throwing something out the window. West lawyers have given HBO two weeks to retract and apologize. But to win a lawsuit, First Amendment lawyer Doug Morrell says they have to prove HBO acted with actual malice. As we saw in the Sarah Palin versus New York Times case, that standard, which the Supreme Court adopted in 1964, is very, very difficult to meet because West is a public figure. And while Morrell doesn't believe a retraction will happen. This shot across the bow may encourage uh, HBO and its clearance people to want to be even more careful than they were uh, in season two than they were in season one. HBO declined to comment for this story. Now, writer Sam Amick explained to me that this isn't just about historical events. Jerry West still plays a major role in the L.A. Clippers organization, and many people seen in the series still work in the basketball industry. So Sam tells me the way that people view these real people, relationships, these politics still matter today. Jake. Natasha Chen, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, they are some of the fastest moving fires burning in the U.S. right now. where Dozens of people are being forced from their homes. But first... A look at the Sundance award-winning CNN film about the unbelievable true story of the man who took on Vladimir Putin and lived to tell the truth. In our national lead now, hundreds of people have been forced to evacuate their homes near Flagstaff, Arizona, as the tunnel wildfire rages in that state. First reported on Sunday, the fire quickly spread, pushed by significant winds and low humidity. Yesterday morning, the fire had burned about 100 acres As of a half hour ago, more than 19,000 acres 
fires destroyed dozens of buildings. FEMA has, says local power and gas distribution networks, a number of historical sites, and hundreds of businesses are at risk. Cindy Wilson, a resident who evacuated, tells CNN affiliate KPNX, quote, I cried driving away because you just don't know. You don't know if you're going to come home to anything. The cause of the tunnel fire is still under investigation. As of now, it is 0% contained. Zero. More than half a million acres have burned in the United States as a result of wildfires this year alone. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever, from whence, you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's right next door in a place I like to call The Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.